You are cordially invited to a long-expected party. Join us, my brother, my captain, my podcast, in our Twitter space on Saturday, April 2nd at 9 p.m. Greenwich Median Time or 4 p.m. Eastern Time as we reflect back on the magic that is the Fellowship of the Ring in the best way we know how, by watching it. Strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you have been summoned here to listen to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The Lord of the Rings trilogy stands upon the brink of its 20-year anniversary. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. It is not the eastern shore that worries me. A shadow under threat has been growing in my mind. Something draws near. I can feel it. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is A Shadow and a Threat, episode 17 on The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Our company arrives at a crossroads, both literally and metaphorically, all while Saruman's forces close in. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. A couple announcements up top. First, over at my Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, we are just five followers away from 75 patrons, which will unlock bonus fellowship episodes on book-only and extended edition scenes. As we are barreling forward to the end of Fellowship of the Ring, we would really love to knock those out before we move on to the two towers. So if you've been listening, if you've been enjoying, uh, please consider signing up and helping support me and Emily continue to bring you these excellent podcasts, if I do say so myself, I guess. And Hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> um, Lastly, I just want to let you all know that this is probably going to be like four weeks after the fact now, but I was a guest on my friend Tom Holzerman's podcast. It's over at his Substack uh, called The Mental Health Break. And in that podcast, we talked a lot about Lord of the Rings, both previous uh, adaptations and ones that are coming up, as well as a bunch of Star Wars, video games, Zelda, Final Fantasy chat. So if you generally enjoy hearing me talk about random bullshit, uh, I think you will enjoy that podcast. So we are at our final two recap episodes of Fellowship of the Ring, so I wanted to use this episode's discussion to talk about how Jackson reworked the last chapter of Fellowship and the first chapter of The Two Towers, the breaking of the Fellowship and the departure of Boromir respectively, to give us this film's stunning finish. First, a little context for the books. The Fellowship's path once they reached Raros was not certain. In the films, the plan is for the Fellowship to follow Frodo to Mordor until he decides to do it himself, with Sam, of course. In the books, instead, a decision has to be made, and there was no oath binding them to any set course. Go back to our Council of Elrond episode where Emily talks about the Oath of Feanor for some more context. In the text, Boromir was always bound to return to Minas Tirith. His path here was south along the west side of the Great River back to the White City. 
And when we get to the Boromir and Frodo encounter, Boromir is more intent on bringing the ring bearer to Minas Tirith than just stealing the ring itself, which, to be fair, he also does attempt to do in the books. We've talked at length about the villainizing of Boromir for the purpose of this film, so I won't say too much more about it now. But where everyone else goes is up in the air. Mordor is east and the most direct path to Frodo's goal. But it's also not required that they all go in the same direction. Aragorn wants, or needs, to go to Minas Tirith himself at some point, and perhaps had Gandalf still been with the company, he could have. But at the time of decision-making, he views himself as Frodo's most capable protector and wants to stick with him. Gimli and Legolas are for the Minas Tirith path, but ultimately will follow Aragorn and or the Ring-Bearer to whatever end. Aragorn also suggests sending Merry and Pippin to Minas Tirith, or even home if they want, to which the hobbits of course object. Don't make me whip out Merry Adduck's monologue about how they will go with Frodo regardless, even now that they have a better grasp of the dangers of the open world. Ultimately, the path falls to Frodo's choice. The road east is more direct and more perilous. The road west is safer, but gets them no nearer towards the goal and also puts the ring in harm's way. Frodo asks for an hour of time to decide, and they let him wander away for a bit to think. The rest of the company debates on their own, but they miss Boromir slip away from them during this time. Boromir approaches Frodo Frodo more directly in the text and gives him the counsel of taking the road to Minas Tirith. We get a lot of the same dialogue we've seen in the films, including stuff that happened earlier, such as Boromir's It is a Gift line from the Council, and So Much Fear Over Such a Small Thing um, from Karadras are stated here. Anyway, they scuffle, Frodo's mind is made up to go alone, and Boromir stumbles back to the Fellowship with his head between his legs. To Boromir's credit, he is mostly honest about what he did to Frodo and does appear contrite. The remaining fellowship scatters in all directions to go look for the ring bearer. Aragorn starts to lead Sam towards the top of the hill for a good view, but Sam stops halfway and turns around. He, gets Fro- he understands Frodo better than everyone else. He knows Frodo has made up his mind, but it's just a matter of how he would do it. He would want to go alone, and he'd need boats, so while everyone's scattered, Sam rightfully circles back to the camp and catches up to Frodo. They cross the river together, and... That's kind of the end of the book Fellowship of the Ring. The arrival of the Urukai, the death of Boromir, and the capture of Merry and Pippin are all at the start of the next book, The Two Towers. Smartly, in my opinion, Jackson shifts the first chapter of The Two Towers into the Fellowship's film finale. The reasons I like this change. It neatly wraps up Aragorn and Boromir's arcs for these films. It pays off the tension playing between our two men and their relationship to Frodo that we've detailed through our coverage. The specific takes this film has on those characters come to a head in this moment, and it cleanly allows Aragorn to pick up the meme or legacy of Boromir to carry the torch of Gondor moving forward. Note, I wonder if this is also easier from an actor contract standpoint to have Boromir's entire theatrical performance contained in one movie. Of course, I imagine these films have their own weird contract quirks due to them all being filled at the same time. Secondly, the movie ends with a bang. Look, I'm a fucking action movie simp, so I love a memorable action sequence to be the exclamation point on a film, especially when it's imbued with pathos and emotion like this film's ending. We get to see the Fellowship do some more action stuff, this time in the bright light of day. It's well shot and choreographed, you can feel the bumps our characters take. It's a great alchemy between fantasy and grit. More on the fight next week. I also love how we get to juxtapose the moments of Sam and Frodo with Aragorn and Boromir. 
This will be our discussion point for next week's episode. Both interactions are a reflection of Lord of the Rings' tender masculinity, and I think getting Boromir's goodbye followed by Sam and Frodo pack a bigger emotional punch in concert than alone. And this also just gets things moving for the two towers. Going into the second film, our separate plot threads are defined. Merry and Pippin being taken to Isengard, the three hunters on their tail, and Sam and Frodo eastward bound. The two towers will literally need like two minutes to catch us up, and then we're off to the races with all these plot threads. I think this generally works best for a lot of Hollywood sequels. Two, I think it would be a mess with the pacing of the two towers opening if we had to squeeze in Boromir's death before or after the Gandalf-Balrog fight through Moria, which I can tease you right now is my favorite opening scene in any movie and part of the reason the two towers is my personal baby of the trilogy. If it didn't start like that, not sure how I'd feel. Yeah, so <laughs> I mean this like quite seriously when I say that this is the episode I've been like both dreading and kind of like nigh on giddy for. Um, I'm excited because like this point really signals to me the kind of end of the narrative childhood of this story. Um, and from here on out, it's kind of like the years of narrative adulthood for the story of the Lord of the Rings. Um, I don't want to like make it out like the things that happened before now don't interest me or like aren't themselves like rich with meaning and value. They do interest me, obviously, um, and they are valuable, but they're also like fairly morally black and white. Um, I've tried throughout the course of the last 20 or so episodes, I think, to point out where things maybe aren't as cut and dry morally as they may seem. But when push comes to shove, like fellowship as a whole is a story where right and wrong is almost always like clear and inarguable. From here on out, things aren't just bigger, they're also more political. And so this is partially why I've been dreading this episode. I joke about being a Debbie Downer, but for the most part, I've tried to keep it kind of light and friendly. But through Two Towers and Return of the King, I'm going to be kicking out against both Tolkien and Peter Jackson. Usually, I'm like quite gleeful about getting to fight, and I do love a contrarian take, but it's hard when you're balancing being a fan of the books and not wanting to sound like a pretentious dickhead, um, while also trying to balance that with being a left-winger and not sacrifice that po particular political program. So, um, that disclaimer on like my myriad neuroses out of the way. Here's my take on this specific change. I like it. I like it, but <laughs> I think everything you've hit on Manu uh, about pacing and narrative closure is totally correct. And I think if you take the movie as its own thing, effectively discreet from the books, then this whole change is good. And so what I'm about to say is less about this specific narrative change than a question about like the structure of the movie's narrative as a whole. So here's where I kind of differ. In the books, we don't see Boromir dying. We know that he is shot with some six orc arrows, but we don't actually see it occur. And in fact, this is part of a larger theme for Tolkien surrounding depictions of violence. He is, by and large, sparing in his use of it, and we'll get into this more next week. But Tolkien's careful and relatively restrained use of depictions of violence is a purposeful thing. It ensures that the drama of the moment is derived from the underlying acts, not the violence itself. Which is to say, in the books, we know that Boromir dying is an immense thing, not because we've seen him take arrow after arrow after arrow, but because the reason for his dying, his sacrifice for Merry and Pippin, his recognition of his wrongdoing, and his dying desperation to see his people protected, speaks for itself. 
The enormity of Boromir's character is then derived from the things he does that exemplify his morals. The innate drama intensity of violence doesn't really need to come into it. In the films, the real glory or the real glory of his death is the glory of how those six arrows come to be implanted in him. We see each one hit him, we watch in slow motion as he is brutalized, brought to his knees in painful, dramatic fashion. I should say, like, it is obviously a very good show. It's well choreographed, it's well shot, and it is, of course, well acted. But for its emphasis on the violence of it all, and to put that as the capstone of this first film, the film really undermines in some way the significance of what Boromir is doing and what he did. I think there is kind of something significant in having the acts of violence that lead to Boromir's death occur effectively in the silence between the books. For many of the men who went to the trenches in either or both world wars, the trauma of violence lived in those silences. When Tolkien neglects to show us this act of violence, he's taking a leap of faith that we as the audience will still understand and sympathize with the pain of a brutal death, even if we do not act as the voyeur during it. So yeah, structurally, I think there probably wasn't a better way to handle this in the context of this movie, and I think the pacing of the following movie would have likely been irreparably fucked by following the book to the letter. But I do kind of want to register my critiques here because I think they are important, and I think they're going to continue to be important as we delve further into the next two films and books, and as I continue to harp on my essential discomfort with the way violence works at these films. I do think it is really significant that, whereas in the books, the ultimate heart and soul of the stories in each of the books and then the stories as a whole is the kind of smaller acts of quiet. Sam and Frodo setting off together. uh, Sam and Frodo also setting off together in Two Towers, you know, making their entrance into Mordor. And then at the very end of it all, uh, Sam and Frodo uh, going their separate ways. In the movies, the most significant height, the emotional height of every single movie comes from these immense acts of violence, whether it's Boromir's death or Helm's Deep or the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. And I think that emphasis, that change to the narrative structure is actually kind of revealing about what the kind of undercurrents, ideological undercurrents going into these movies are. And I'm not a huge fan of it, but I do think you are right that given that these are more action movies than kind of meditative fantasy films and it does work for the genre that it's aiming for yeah i i mean i hate to start episodes out like disagreeing with emily but i'm going to be taking the exact opposite tact uh, moving (laughs) forward because i i love violence in cinema um and part of the reason going back to our episode with emmett and moria part of the reason i gravitated to these movies is that they were willing to depict violence in a way that was not cartoony but also um you know it's fantastical still. It's not like, you know, watching a Saw movie or something like that. It's um, gore that I can handle, but I, I don't know what to, it's. It's a hard for me to wrap my head around this just because to me, the starting point is the films. Um, I know the books came first and I've read the books and I like the books, but the films are the thing that made the impression on me and the thing that I am doing the podcast for. Um, or we, sorry, not I. Um, but, um, and The Two Towers is my favorite not just Lord of the Rings film, but like 
possibly my favorite movie ever, mostly because of the action beats and the violence and all that stuff. So yeah, um, it will be interesting to see how we synthesize that going forward. And I don't think Emily is wrong. When I say I disagree with her, what I'm saying is my sensibilities are to revel in the violence and action shown in these movies. Um, I do think it gets the small moments still correct, although I do think it loses the themes of pacifism or violence in the silence, a term I really like. Not like that phrasing, because the rhyming makes it sound kind of dumb, but um, like what Emily was speaking to her about, the violence existing in between um, pages, in between books, in the silent moments, in between paragraphs. I think that's a fantastic analysis I had never considered. So when I say I disagree, this is almost completely just an aesthetic preference thing, and just the fact that we... What matters to us in terms of how we relate to the Lord of the Rings, the idea of the Lord of the Rings is kind of fundamentally a little different just because Emily, um, you know, approaches it more from the adaptation and book standpoint. And me, I am trying to transport myself to being 17 years old, sitting in the AMC in South Barrington, <laughs> Illinois, and remembering how fucking great it was at the time. So yeah, right. Like, I think this is it. I think this is kind of we we both are using these different measures because like, for me, I am like interested like my foundation here is the story of the lord of the rings and like my question is it, it like you know the movies are all almost kind of ancillary to that and in, in that like i obviously love the movies and i think the movies are brilliant but like the movies could have been brilliant in a thousand and one different ways to me and it wouldn't have changed my love of the story like it, it, in, in a sort of way like what i'm saying is like you could theoretically change the story to get more to the point, like more to the the moral or the theme of the story of the Lord of the Rings. And I would be just as happy, but like, you know, my, my kind of comparison for like movies that I think like should never, ever, ever be touched or changed or edited in any sort of way is like the empire strikes back. Um, and that to me is like, you can't change a second of that and still have it be the empire strikes back. It would be something totally different. And that kind of like sense of like, this is the complete package. This is the finished package. This is all that it should be. This is kind of like the like apotheosis of what the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars is to me is like, for me, that's the books for you that's the movies and so we're like measuring it from different angles i guess if that makes sense <laughs> yeah it's like a dialectic of sorts so we're trying to find out where yes. the synthesis is between the two of us and i do think because <laughs> of it we're actually finding little bits of wisdom or like funny little things that we had never noticed because we you know we tend to be in our own tunnel vision of the way we approach art um so actually kind of <laughs> not clashing with someone but seeing someone who comes in from the other end of the tunnel um you know, it reveals itself in fun ways. Like there, I'm going to think about Gandalf and Aragon way more negatively going forward um, <laughs> than I ever would have imagined. And I still love Gandalf and Aragon as depicted in the films. Like, um, I think the criticism that. is more in the adaptation of them and the general whitewashing of their moral character. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not like simping every time. Uh, what's it called? Ian McKellen like casts a white light to shoe off Nazgul or something like that. Like that stuff still bangs. Yeah. So that that's the thing is like in the movies, I guess there's kind of this meta element to it. Like when I read the books, right? Like I like I feel like I'm fully reading something that could, all, you know, I, I have I have a sense of reality to it. I'm not like I'm not totally like. Uh, insane yet i'm getting there um <laughs> but like that to me feels like some yeah <laughs> honestly but like the books to me feel like something that's real whereas when i'm sitting down watching like these movies in particular i'm like i am watching movies like they are probably some of the best movies i've ever seen but i i never kind of leave that sense of like i am watching an incredible set of films 
in the books, I'm not like I'm I'm reading an incredible set of books. I'm like, oh my god, I need to think about like what the implications of all of these kind of like little threads that are left in the text are. And the way that I think about that is not necessarily different to the way that I think about like, for example, anything that I like, you know, uh, study at like you know evidence that I study as a historian or whatever. Like those two things are similar to me. The meta element of the films is absolutely integral in a way to the enjoyment of it. Yeah. And just to be fair, show some level of solidarity with Emily. This is a criticism I have of Game of Thrones, especially the last half of the series run, is that I think it's acceptable to say, you know, to build towards a big spectacle, climatic finish with a lot of big battles. But that wasn't ever the point of A Song of Ice and Fire. Like the battles were there. Um, But like, the big moments are, you know, the smaller things, whether it's Ned Stark being beheaded or Jamie, um, te- you know, unburdening his soul in a bathtub with Brienne. Um, just like little existential wins that people make, you know, even if they're going to die and often they do die. Um, but like they choose to do the right thing to not give up, you know, people who, you know, need defense or anything like that. But instead, everything became dragons and zombies and big war uh, between two factions. And like that stuff's great. And I'm sure that stuff will be in the final books when when and if we get them. But those aren't the things that make A Song of Ice and Fire or even the original couple seasons of Game of Thrones so super important to me. It's generally like Ned Stark and Varys talking in the dungeons with like one torch in between them and just hearing them you go through emotional catharsis, political catharsis. Those are the things that mean something to me. So while I did enjoy most of Game of Thrones, it it went away that I wouldn't have, if I was adapting the show, I would have focused more on those smaller intimate moments and kind of the, and not so much on the spectacle and the big uh, blow uppy dragon strafing the screen kind of stuff, even though that stuff is pretty gnarly in its own way. Yeah. I mean, like, like that, that to me, everything that you've just said there, if you swap out like Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire for Lord of the Rings and the various characters for the Lord of the Rings characters, that is exactly how I feel about Lord of the Rings. Like, and that is why I think especially this kind of change, this, this narrative change for me is really interesting because like, um, Fellowship of the Ring as a book is a very quiet book to me. Um, like it's one of these books where, um, if I want to feel like I'm kind of sitting in a field for a bit, um, that's the book, like, you know, sitting in, in a field under the like warm sun, blue skies, and maybe a bottle of red wine or whatever. Like that is the book that I would go to because it's a kind of quiet, easygoing book. And even at like the, the, the emotional high points, even in Moria, um, even here really, um, it's still kind of a, a, like a summer day sort of book. Um, and the back half of the movie absolutely isn't that. And that's not to say that like the movie is worse for it, but it is like noticeably different to me in that kind of tonal sense. And I think this is kind of like when I went back and read the books for the first time, this was the first point where I had that kind of like tonal shock of like, oh, wow, these are like actually like very different. It's not just that the, the like books have like you know, not the books have expanded on, on the films or the movies have condensed the books. Like they are actually going in noticeably different directions. And like, there is actually kind of something to be pulled from there.
The Fellowship departs from Lothlorien via three boats, heading south down the Great River or Anduin. They make for Parth Galen and the Falls of Raros. From there, the plan, in these movies, is to turn east towards Emun Miel and Mordor. The further downriver they go, the more the landscape deteriorates around them. The tree line fades and fades into rock, greens changing to grays and browns. The land to the east of the river here is known as the Brownlands, a region of Rovanian that Sauron despoiled in full. We cut to a low shot of the woods on the western side. All of a sudden, a flurry of Uruk feet sweep across the screen. Saruman's forces are moving fast, relentless, in sunlight. We cut between both companies, Fellowship and Urukship, as they both make for the same point on the map. Legolas, <laughs> with the gift of his elf eyes, sees something of what hunts for them. Not much to do about it at the moment. Gotta continue down the river as both east and western shores hold perils that can be avoided for the nonce on the water. The comforts of Lothlorien are long behind. The company remains silent and sullen as their journey endures. But alas, their unease is broken by one of the wonders of the world. As they inch closer to the falls, two giant statues rise in the distance, the Pillar of Kings. Long have I desired to look upon the kings of old. My kin. The statues mark the northern boundaries of Gondor and are representations of Isildur and Elendil. The entire fellowship is in awe at the wondrous sight. They pass between the statues and their giant feet, which gets such clear focus I half wonder if Quentin Tarantino directed the scene. <laughs> Once past the statues, our party is now in Nan Hethoel, the lake that marks the end of our fellowship's water travels. They cannot take the Anduin further, as it plunges hundreds of feet at Raros, so the fellowship makes camp on the western borders. Don't miss Boromir shuddering as he deboats. I assume he caught a chill that long on the water. Aragorn wants to wait till the cover of nightfall before they cross to the eastern side, but Legolas has better instincts. Something draws nears from the west, and they cannot linger here long. Aragorn may have wanted to listen to your reply guy here. Instead, Aragorn starts detailing the next part of the journey. We cross the lake at nightfall. Hide the boats and continue on foot. We approach Mordor from the north. Oh, yes? Just a simple matter of finding our way through Emin Muil. An impassable labyrinth of razor-sharp rocks. And after that, it gets even better. A festering, stinking marshland as far as the eye can see. That is our road. I suggest you take some rest and recover your strength, Master Dwarf. Recover my... Mary returns from gathering up some kindling, only to find everyone else just laying on their ass. He asks for Frodo, and the party suddenly realizes the ring-bearer is no longer around. Sam leaps up. Aragorn looks over at Boromir's bed, noting the man isn't there. The camera cuts to Frodo, mindlessly wandering Parth Galen. There are fa fallen statues and ruins about. The kingdom of Gondor once held outposts on both east and west bank here, which is what I'm guessing we are seeing. Frodo seems lost in thought when the snap of a twig brings him back to his senses. It's the rebels! Quick, jump on the speeder bike and ride back to the shield generator! <laughs> Wait, sorry, no. It's Boromir, just casually gathering firewood nearby. He seems kindly enough, telling Frodo he shouldn't wander alone. Ever heard of the buddy system, Frodo? It's smart. 
Sam will remind you of it before the movie wraps up. After locking eyes, Boromir turns to his true purpose. He understands that Frodo suffers. He sees it. Hell, Boromir suffers in much the same way, feeling burdened by his own purpose and the oncoming doom of his kingdom. There are other paths for Frodo, alternative actions that would see him suffer less. Frodo recognizes some wisdom in what the captain of Gondor is saying, but it doesn't drown out the alarm bells ringing in his head. This motherfucker is about to take my ring, isn't he? Boromir keeps unraveling. First, he pleads that he only wishes to have the ring to defend Gondor, an understandable, if wrong-handed, sentiment. And he only wants it for a little bit. He promises to return it. At this point, Boromir is fully ensorcelled by the ring. Whether the words he speaks are his or the rings, it's hard to tell, but Sean Bean is so great at spitting them out. If you would but lend me the ring. No. Why do you recoil? I am no thief. You are not yourself. What chance do you think you have? They will find you. They will take the ring. And you will beg for death before the end. Oh. It is not your save by unhappy chance. Put away mine. It should be mine. With no other choice, Frodo slips on the ring and flees the scene. Boromir's ensorcelment lingers briefly, but then fades, and Boromir is snapped back to. Frodo? Frodo? What have I done? Please, Frodo. We are now with Frodo in the Twilight World, as he tries to put as much distance between himself and Boromir, who can still be heard off-screen. Frodo finds himself scrambling up a set of stone steps and unknowingly finds himself upon the Seat of Seeing, one of those outposts we alluded to earlier. While Frodo hides in the ancient seat, he hears an ominous murmuring behind him. He takes a peek to the east, and with frightening clarity he gazes upon Barad-dûr. Thousands of orcs are pouring out of its gate. The camera winds its way up the dark fortress, and at its zenith is that which has been hounding Frodo throughout, the great Eye of Sauron, between the twin points at the top of the tower. In this moment, Sauron speaks to the ring-bearer as he's bathed in the flames of the great Eye. Frodo frantically and clumsily removes the ring, falling to the ground below at the foot of Amon-Hen. Frodo gathers himself, once again back in our world, and getting a proper look at the ruins now, a seat ordained with stone eagles as the camera pans out. All of a sudden, a black boot steps into frame. Boromir, back again? No, it's the other dude, Aragorn. The one Frodo trusts, right? Well, maybe. When he tells Strider it took Boromir, Strider responds with possibly his harshest line delivery all series. Where is the ring? Frodo tells Aragorn to stay back, but Aragorn is adamant that he swore to protect Frodo. Yeah, sure thing, big man, but can you protect me from yourself? Or even better, would you destroy it? Aragorn closes in on the Hobbit. I would have gone with you to the end. Into the very fires of Mordor. Aragorn closes Frodo's hand around the ring and lets him go. 
don't miss the ring saying LSR in that clip. He promises to explain things to Sam too. Sam will not understand why his master has run off without him. Aragorn nods, but then quickly jumps up. Run. Huh? Thinks Frodo. And then he realizes his blade is shining blue. The Urukai have arrived. And we'll stop there for this penultimate recap of the Fellowship of the Ring. So we'll begin today by discussing the Argonath, or the Gates of Argonath, or Pillar of Kings, which are depicted as two giant stone statues with hands outstretched with palms forward, which is not really a welcoming sight to me sailing into Gondor. (laughs) The Argonath was created in the Third Age of 1248 to mark victory over Easterlings um, and defining the northern boundary of Gondor. Uh, and as mentioned, the statues are of Aragorn, Aragorn, sorry, uh, Isildur <laughs> and Elendil, which are two characters that have at least been shown, if not named, in the movie so far. But that's not exactly how it is in the books. Yeah, so in the books, they are Isildur and Anarion, and it's kind of meant to be like um, Isildur is on the side that is closest to the Northern Kingdom, which is Arnor, which is the, the kingdom that he ruled over, and then Anarion is on the bank that is closest to Gondor, which is the, king, the kingdom that he ruled over, ruled over rather, uh, but also ruled over, I guess. Um, and to be honest, like uh, I, I don't, it's it's one of these things, kind of like uh, Amon Sul, uh, Weathertop, where I'm not really all that fussed about it. The the film not going into tremendous amount of detail um because i think like kind of this background sense of history is is like uh very effective um at like setting the scene in a way that you know essentially promises people more history and if they want to find that history they can go read the books but they don't necessarily need to know it which is uh you know good for a movie and um, but i also like that they don't really mention um anarian uh pretty much at all in the films um and just name a sealder because it keeps anarian and by extension Gondor effectively free of sin uh, and I know I've like been over the fact that like uh, Aragorn is also uh, descended from Anarian's line through Furiel um, but I like that he identifies primarily with Isildur because I'm like good Anarian's line is like a f- slightly better side like the Gondor lot are much better fuck your people Aragorn I don't want any of your shit <laughs> um, but like I-, I guess and also kind of a-, a larger sense like within the movie I, I like um I like that there's this, like, sense of, um, I mean, well, it's not that there's a sense of, like, this movie really wants you to feel awe at the Argonath, and I think that is, like, the correct level of, like, slight fear. Maybe I'm, like, maybe it's just my, like, megalophobia kind of kicking in here, but I see those, and, like, my heart kind of races a bit. I'm like, they're way, they're way too big. They're way too big. Um, But there's, like, a lot of, like, kind of, like, ancientry and, like, mystique involved in them. Um. And there's also kind of this like interplay between like kind of the dead kingdom, which is the north and Isildur's kingdom and the living kingdom, which is the south and Anarion's kingdom. Um, And up until this point in the films and in the book, um, we've been wandering through like the dead kingdom of Arnor. And now we're entering the living kingdom of Gondor. And 
the symbolism is like a bit more clear in the books when we know for certain that they're a sealed or an Anarian. Like we know that both lines have failed, but Anarian's kingdom still continues because Anarian's heirs were slightly smarter than a sealder's. Um, but like, I like that there's this, even, even in the films, you kind of can't escape the sense that this is like truly and in every sense of the word symbolic narrative, otherwise a true gateway. And that allows us to zoom back a little bit and talk about some geography 101 here about Middle Earth, since basically everything in this small region is explicitly named and is the location where our fellowship's fate is forever altered. Um, Sam even calls the river the frontier of war, which I think is he's referring to in more of a historical sense in the books. Um, but it is also kind of a frontier, at least in terms of storytelling for us here. The Fellowship took the Great River south from Lothlorien, and after passing the Argonoth, are in a pool of water known as Nan Hithoel. At the south end of the pool, water plunges down at the fall of Raros, Golden Raros. Bisecting the waterfall is Tol Brandir, a sheer rock spire emerging from the falls, which you can see depicted in the film. Yeah, and so I'm just going to jump in real quick with uh, classics and etymology. Um, so Argonoth... Uh, <laughs> literally well okay it doesn't literally translate to um, in my literal translation which is obviously an abomination it translates to <laughs> pair of royal stones <laughs> um but like the r uh root is the same as in aragorn and it means royal or noble and then gone as in argo like gone um is actually uh the same root as in Gondor, it means stone. It comes from the Sindarin word stone. And then the O or the A-F-T-E, ath ending is like a pluralized ending for a proper name, uh, typically used for like uh, uh, dual pluralities, like two, the number two. I don't know why I said it like that. It's typically used for things that come in two, things that come in pairs. So given that you've got the royal root, the stone root, and the pair root, uh, it is therefore <laughs> pair of royal, royal stones. <laughs> um, and then you've got uh, then Hithoil, which is Cinderin for like mist cool water. Uh, you know, I, this is not exactly like a symbolism heavy uh, name, but I like pointing out that like the way that Tolkien is thinking about how he's naming these things is much the same way that things have typically been named throughout history. And like uh, when, you know, when you say something uh, enough times or with like enough authority, it kind of takes on the this, this like not just official but but like far beyond the like quotidian kind of feeling to it so even though this is literally like a lake that a lake's name that is mist cool water lake really um it sounds uh far more like interesting and, and you know you, you get that in a lot of places like i used to live uh near a place called Vols church which is <laughs> <laughs> not exactly like uh, a, a non-descriptive name. Like it is literally just church by waterfalls. But like when it you kind of remove it from that immediate geographical context, it sounds like very high and mighty. And that, that's kind of what's going on with Nanhith Oil here. Um, I just said that to point out the level of like depth that Tolkien is putting into this. Um, then you got Tol Brandir, which is Isle of Steeples. Um, again, not particularly interesting um name but i wanted to point it out because the brand b-r-a-n-d uh name in Sindarin, if you trace that back to primitive quendian which is not a language that we've talked about here before but is kind of like the uh father language mother language to quenya proper the elvish language uh it it has the root barad so like barader uh so steeples and towers are, are like cognates there 
And then Raros, which just means roaring rain, um, which is a, a lovely, very poetic name, way to describe a waterfall there. And as uh, as you say, uh, we really, really are like sonically aware of Raros pretty much the whole way through this. Yeah, I like uh, Raros there uh, translating to roaring rain because it gives it almost this like onomatopoeic, uh Yeah flavor to it like it actually sounds like the thing it is and i actually really enjoy that factoid about how toll brandier and its etymology uh intertwines with barat Dur because they do have very similar shaped steeples or at least like the sharp point that the rock uh arrives at at the top uh is very similar now that i think about it so that's that's a real cool observation the wooded bank to the west is known as Parth Galen, and beyond the bank to the east is the rocky Emun Wheel, which we will see at the very end of this film. The Emun Wheel does continue on the west side of the river as well, but we're just going to ignore that for now. Yes, but what we are not going to do is ignore some more etymology. Yay! Um, so Parth Galen, I like uh, because it literally just means green field. Another one of these super descriptive ones. Um, it comes from Parth, which means like sward or like field uh, grasslands, um, and then Galen, which actually comes from the Sindarin Kalen. Uh, typically, uh, names and names and, and words occasionally in Sindarin uh, will use G's and C's almost interchangeably. So a lot of the time, if you see like a word that has a G or a C, if you swap out uh, for the other, you'll typically find the definitional or like the the like mother word, the root word um, for anybody who spends their time doing that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, and then Emin Wheel uh, literally translates to Jury Hills, which is again, another one of these like brilliantly descriptive uh, <laughs> names. Um, but Emin is the plural of Amen. Um, so Amen Hen, Amen Wheel, these both, like one is a singular hill and the other is hills. Um, and I will now take this point to do my customary, uh, when, uh, Eowyn and Faramir are not on screen, every, all the other characters should be asking where are Eowyn and Faramir by saying, uh, you can compare this with Amen Arnon, which is the place that they settle in Athelion, which means the hills of Arnon. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah. And just as a side note, I think I said a couple episodes back, I'll stop apologizing for mispronouncing uh, words I have never seen or heard because they're from the books or the Silmarillion. Um, I apologize for how I've been saying Emin Muil. Um, it just comes out different every time I said it, even though I can hear Gimli in my head saying Emin Muil, a jagged labyrinth of rocks or whatever the hell he says. Um, that was good. Well done. Yeah, I'm working on my Gimli. Um, I don't think I've ever said it the same ever at all. Like it is, it is basically putting things in like a tombola tumbler and then whatever comes out is how I pronounce it that day. <laughs> yeah. I usually feel okay. Kind of trying to phonetically work things out, but the UI is still a letter combo, uh, combination combination that I struggle. <laughs> um, even like Anduin or uh, Branduin or Branduin. Um, I know we've talked about the various pronunciations, but I think that UI phonetical unit is something that it just comes out different every time I get to it, get to a yep. word that has it. <laughs> yep, same. Each bank has a hill overlooking it and the lake. Gondor built outposts upon each hill. Amon Hen and Amon Law dating back to the days of the king, which I assume is the second age. Yes. The word Ammon, which should ring a bell from Ammon Sul, aka Weathertop, which Emily has already went over for you. Amon Hen, or Hill of the Eye, is where Frodo scrambles to after Boromir goes bad. Atop it is the Seat of Seeing, which we will get into more later this episode. A quick shout out to Legolas's elf eyes as well. I remember being a little confused my first time watching this. Could Legolas just see the Uruks moving along the banks, or was he seeing something much further off? 
The film plays in that ambu- ambiguity. Goddamn that UI sound. Uh, the film plays in ambiguity a little, as the fellowship will hear a startled bur- bird not far offshore and react accordingly. The East Bank is supposedly patrolled by orcs. Now, with context clues on later films and a butter- better understanding of elves and elves as depicted in Jackson's trilogy, I know about his keen eyesight. Just think it's a cool bit, having come off our Legolas episode noting how little there is about Legolas himself, I just cherish every moment that he gets. So in one of our previous character episodes, in the Gimli episode, actually, I think, uh, Gimli episode, um, I uh, mentioned that Tolkien went through a phase uh, later in his life where he tried to science up a lot of the things that he said and wrote in uh, in Lord of the Rings and some of the unfinished, unpublished works. Um, and we'll inexplicably genuinely inexplicably like i think about this sometimes and like it gives me a migraine because i'm like why would you ever make that call um so tolkien decided to try and uh scientifically quote unquote scientifically explain uh what elf eyes are (laughs) and why they are special um and to be fair to him like it is a broadly logical explanation but um as we've kind of mentioned before um at the fall of numenor um when uh eru Luvatar brought the sundering seas down on the isle of westerness uh he did so by curving the earth um before that point the earth was flat and uh after the sundering of uh of the of numenor and the 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 kind of route between beleria and numenor and valinor and the earth was then round um and the elves, of course, being elves, um, had adapted their eyesight to be able to see um, on a flat earth and they could see long distances on a flat earth. And suddenly the uh, earth was round and they needed to be able to get to uh, Valinor, where they were rightfully meant to claim their uh, their homes, their land until the end of days, until the the, the final uh, war against Morgoth. Um, they kind of never fully adapted to the earth being round, um, which is why they are like able to sail across the 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 Sundering Seas to Valinor and why they are able to see so far because they effectively still see the earth like it's round. So whereas according to Tolkien's logic here, whereas like human eyes are hindered by the fact that there is a horizon point and that you cannot see below the horizon point because the earth actively curves, the elves don't see the horizon point. Uh, they see the earth as if it is flat. And that's why Legolas's elf eyes uh, act the way they are. Uh, and that is your little bit of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien in the 1960s and 70s was really fucking on one for about 10 years. And my God, someone should have stopped him. <laughs> Scientifically arriving at flat Middle Earth theory. I, I really love it. <laughs> Also in these scenes, it appears Lurtz is looking back at Legolas. As Saruman learned us in the last episode, the orcs were once elves taken by dark powers. I don't think it matters, but I wonder if, like, in the two towers, from the orcs' point of view, someone is like, Grishnak, what do your orc eyes see? <laughs> I love so, <laughs> there's a couple reasons we broke the final scenes the way we did. At first, I thought maybe we could do all the events here in the Din of Raros together, but I think it would shortchange this film's finish, which I think is just grand. <laughs> Looking ahead to next time, there's a lot to cover. The battle at Amon Hen, Boromir's death, Sam and Frodo, and how the film sets up the two towers. But I also really wanted to revel in the unraveling of Boromir, as played by Sean Bean, who we've lavished with praise over these last eight to nine episodes. 
In our Boromir episode, number 11, The Horn of Gondor, I asked Emily about Boromir AUs and any fan fiction deviating from this moment here at the end of Fellowship. But in the end, it is almost a fruitless limb to dangle on, because this right here, the breaking of the Fellowship and Boromir's attempt to take the ring, are these inflection points of narrative, absolutely critical to the trajectory of the larger saga. It absorbs everything set up so far in Fellowship, and its gravity will see our Fellowship spin out into three separate plot threads going into the next movie. Given the criticality of this moment, it was crucial for Sean Bean to bring his A-game to this moment. And I'll also give props to Elijah Wood, who I think is pretty great for a character I'm not that into. Because of that, I often forget to highlight his performance while heaping praise on others, but Wood, also very good. For Boromir, though, we need to believe in his desire for the ring, the madness that comes over him in the moment to the point that he will physically accost Frodo, and that Frodo would fear for his life. And then, believably, we have to realize what a fool he's been and the mistake he's made after, and that turn is literally on a dime. This is probably one of the tougher sells amongst all the performances in this movie. The attempt itself has been well set up. We've seen Boromir demand the ring be taken to Gondor, we've seen him hold it at Caradhras, and we've seen him be a blubbering mess ever since they entered Lothlorien. Aragorn realizing that Boromir and Frodo were missing at the same time is the last indicator that it's all coming to a head. Do you think Boromir was actually gathering wood and stumbled on Frodo, or did he realize Frodo left and went after him and used the wood as a pretense? Um, and Metal Gear has also made me overprone to thinking about the meta, which is a space that the game plays in between the player and the game itself. And this film has really no meta qualities to it. But that said, Boromir gathering wood, hoping to collect Elijah wood in the process, just kind of <laughs> stuck out to me. <laughs> Boromir's greeting to Frodo is kind enough. You shouldn't be out here, especially alone. When he realizes Frodo's mind is elsewhere, he tries to empathize with Frodo. Again, not necessarily unkindly. Are you sure your suffering is required? Questions Boromir. Frodo at this point is tensing up. His answer is silence, and all that can be heard are the trees and the waterfall in the distance. Let me help you, Boromir breaks the silence. We have other choices, you know. When Frodo says he feels a warning in his heart, Boromir's descent hastens. Lord knows in the year of our Lord 2022, no one should look to the Jedi for wisdom, but you can almost apply Yoda's adage, Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate, etc. to how the scene plays out. Fear. We've set up Boromir's despair in the films ever since he arrived at Rivendell. Fear for the fate of his father, of Gondor, of failing. And now his words to Frodo are about fear itself. We're all afraid, he pleads, but we shouldn't let that fear rule over us. He wishes only to protect the people of Gondor, which is where Boromir turns to anger as he slams down the firewood and moves towards Frodo. The ring bearer recoils, as if he's a cat about to be picked up by a human. You can see the anger boiling up in Sean Bean's face, the furrowed brow and the way his mouth twists. What chance do you think you have? And anyway, it's just unhappy chance that put the ring in your pocket. Honestly, it could have been my pocket. It should have been, even. At this point, Boromir has tackled Frodo and is trying to physically steal the ring until Frodo puts it on and scurries away. And I think he gets a blow in on Boromir too, who takes like an uppercut to the chin. Boromir is altogether confused, but then we see him move on to hatred. After accusing Frodo of treason, Boromir goes on to curse him and curse the halflings as a whole. He doesn't quite call for Hobbit genocide, though. 
Is there a word for that? Hobbitside? Genoshire? <laughs> but either way, my man is popping ma- uh, piping mad with hatred. Until he does a pratfall and breaks from his trance. Boromir getting up is great. I don't have the skill to tell if this is a good wig or not, but I love the dried leaves in Boromir's hair as he gets up, almost a laurel crown on him. Zoomed in on his face, we see him call for Frodo at first quietly, and then more loudly as he comes to grips with what he's done. This, I think, is the moment Bean Bean most has to nail, and does nail. We need to feel Boromir is earnest, that he has shame or guilt for attempting to take the ring. There's a really cringe Littlefinger quote from Game of Thrones Season 7. Battle, <laughs> fight every battle everywhere in your mind at all times. And while that line is kind of silly, silly, it is to some degree how I approach narrative and movies. When a character shows up or something big happens, I start running through every possibility in my mind. Is this character secretly a villain? Is this character lying? Was the stated reason for XYZ not actually the case? Etc. So in this moment, my brain is asking, is Boromir back to normal, or is he still trying to get the ring from Frodo, but by using contrition and patheticness? The latter notion was quickly dispelled by Bean's performance. From his eyes, the way he tried to gather himself up, the way he yelled after Frodo, cursing what he himself had done and apologizing to the Hobbit, it quelled any suspicions I had about Boromir being duplicitous in this moment. I like that you can even hear him yelling when Frodo is in the Twilight world, having put some distance between himself and Boromir. Oh my god. Okay, I think this is the second time on this podcast in a very short number of episodes where like someone has said something and my brain has just absolutely collapsed in on itself. And that question about whether or not Boromir is using like contrition and basically making himself look pathetic to try and get what he wants is such a fucking brilliant question. And and here's why it's fucking brilliant. Because both of both of the remaining people in his family that we deal with uh, later in the books do exactly that. Um, uh, sorry. Okay, hang on. Uh, I'm gonna take a deep breath here. This is incredible, and I'm so glad that you've picked up on this because uh, Denethor, Boromir's father, actively uses positioning himself as sort of the poor withered old man as a means of trying to get to an end, and it works on Pippin. Um, Pippin thinks in Return of the King in, in, in Gondor, I think it's the Siege Minister, if it's the chapter, he thinks, you know, that he, he's he got this tremendous amount of sympathy, earned sympathy for Denethor and for everything that he's he's been through. And he thinks that, you know, he's kind of, you know, looking old and, and looking like he's he's truly, truly grieved for his son, which, which he obviously is. And, oh, well, since he is someone who feels these emotions so strongly, how about I just tell him uh, some of the things that I've been up to and, and, and give him these stories and, and try and give him this sense of hope. And, you know, Denethor Thor, who is a very, very cynical character by nature, is using this to get more information about uh, the rumors of uh, the return of the king uh, and also about the whatever it is that Isildur's bane is. Um, and that is a really, really clear instance of someone um, being will- like, like, um, Ah, damn, I don't have the book like on me right now. Um, but Denethor basically says something along the lines of like, uh, leave me to my grief. Uh, I'm but an old grieved man. Uh, and uh, and Mithrandir Gandalf immediately stop, like picks up on it. Is like, you're not that, you're not grieving that much. You'll be fine. Um, and then Faramir in in uh, Two Towers uh, in Athelion when he's trying to get more information out of uh, Frodo and Sam also does. Th- 
takes the same tack where the, you know, the first couple minutes where he's talking to Sam and Frodo, he's like, you know, you know there's this line, Boromir, Boromir, uh, uh, whither goest thou, Boromir? Why do you not come riding home on the horses of Rohan and, and the sun? Um, and he is talking about how desperately sad he is and how he wishes that it had been him who was sent in the place of Boromir on this task to, to Rivendell. Um, and Frodo and Sam don't respond very well because they've obviously had this terrible, horrible parting with Boromir and they're kind of quiet and, and Faramir immediately picks up on it and then switches tack to being like, yeah, well, fuck Boromir. He's like a total asshole. I've always known he was a total asshole. Like, fuck that guy. I agree with you. He's a total dickhead. Um, but in both cases, both Faramir and Denethor are, are totally keen on using this kind of like self-imposed patheticness to get what they want. And I'm just absolutely delighted that 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 you've pointed that out because I never clocked that with the, the Boromir thing before as a, as a potential. And I think you're spot on. It is totally within his wheelhouse um, and we know it's within his character wheelhouse um, because everybody else in his uh, family, his melodramatic family does it. Um, so yeah, that is brilliant. Um, I'm just delayed about that. Um, my brain is now like running a million miles an hour. I'm trying to find like my nearest stack of post-it notes so I can start writing down thoughts. Um, but uh, now that I'm taking a deep breath here, um, and, and now having just all, done all of that, I'm going to have to say like, I really <laughs> struggle to articulate like all of my thoughts about this scene because because of the depth of character that you just pointed out there and and sean bean's portrayal and like i think it is a masterful performance and and i think um he does a, a like a huge amount of heavy lifting here because in both the books and the films there's really as far as i'm concerned far too like little narrative sympathy for boromir and um, so the things that i'm about to say i want to point out that it, pretty much all of my critiques here extend to both the books and the films. Um, and though, and though it extends to both of them, my frustration is actually slightly greater with the films because like, as we've talked about kind of in detail so far, um, they're not really scared of altering the facts of Canon when they need to better suit the narrative flow. So like, obviously by having Boromir's death on this side of the fellowship two towers split instead of on the two towers, side of the split they're they're showing that they're willing to kind of work and mold and and, and change things so as I, I feel like i say in every episode it then raises the questions of well why didn't they make x y and z change so here are the things that i'd wish they'd done first i wish they'd emphasized better emphasized why boromir's fear is so great we know they don't shy away from doing flashbacks. I mean, the whole first 10 minutes of this film are is a flashback. So I would have liked to see something to show why Gondor's peril is so much more immediate than, say, Rivendell's or the Shire's. I know we get the establishing shot of Minas Tirith and its closeness to Mordor, but I feel like besides some spooky weather, it doesn't really do as much work as it needs to to establish why everything is a fucking nightmare in Gondor. Generally, I think the filmmakers have next to no sympathy for Gondor, so I know why they didn't do it, but I think it would have helped to turn Boromir's fall from some sort of self-inflicted gunshot wound from hubris to a kind of more upsetting fall of someone who, quite literally, died of caring too much. <laughs> um, and I also should say here, to, to, be, to be benevolent, that Tolkien is fairly bad about this in the books too, though he does give uh Boromir a decent chance to set out his own personal context at Rivendell it's not really until we get to Two Towers and meet Faramir that we learn anything substantial about Gondor still the books don't have Gladriel's prologue so it's not like filmmakers were hindered by adherence to canon accuracy at least in structural terms I also wish that they made more hay about the personal burden that falls on Boromir. In all ways that matter, he and Aragorn are not just effectively of the same rank. They have exactly the same responsibilities. 
Faramir in the book refers to Boromir as a prince of Minas Tirith. And I think this is about more than just titles and holdings. It's about what sort of work and responsibility he has to take on. Denethor is nearly 90 years old at the time of this story, and while those of Numenorean descent do tend to live longer, he actually hasn't really been out personally fighting in around 40 years. So Boromir has to physically helm the army of Gondor as a king might, but unlike a king, he doesn't get any of the laurels and accolades. This is again something Faramir points out about Boromir in the books, that Boromir is pretty keenly aware that he has all the responsibility and burden on his shoulders, but almost none of the recognition. And yet, and I really do want to point this out here, when Boromir is at the height of his corruption by the ring, he's still focusing on his ability to help others. Galadriel talks about how she'd be a queen, and Gandalf talks about what great deeds he'd do. But Boromir always, always, always is concerned about his people. Which leads me to <laughs> Aragorn's bad interpersonal skills. We talked about this briefly in Moria, but Aragorn has been needling Boromir pretty much constantly since the minute they met one another in Rivendell. This is true in both the books and in the movies. These movies take a hard royalist position, which is absolutely their right to do, but come on, it's the 1890s, we have grown beyond the need for a monarchy. I would have liked to see some more implicit criticisms of the existence of monarchies by them pointing out how Aragorn acting like a king isn't actually a great way to interface with people. And I think that Boromir-Aragorn relationship would have been an excellent vessel for that. I'm going to skip over Frodo on the seat of scene to talk about Frodo and Aragorn's encounter. Despite our extreme pro-Boromir stance and anti-Aragorn agitprop, let us, or let me, I'll fall <laughs> on the sword for Emily, engage with the text of this movie in terms of how it wants us to feel. Coming into Frodo's encounter with Aragorn, I don't think we have any real fear Aragorn is going to turn on Frodo, but I think it at least allows them to tease out more of Frodo and Strider's characterization, even though now I'm buying into Emily's position that this does come at Boromir's expense. The tension in the scene starts from the beginning. First, it's Aragorn's boot stepping into frame. Is it Boromir? Is it the foot of an Urukai having found its quarry? No, it's just the dingy ranger. Frodo is briefly relieved. He can trust Aragorn, right? It has taken Boromir. But Aragorn's first words are not of dismay or comfort for Frodo, but rather a harsh, where is the ring? Like I said, it's probably the harshest line delivery and speaks to Aragorn's lack of interpersonal skills, which Emily just mentioned. Aragorn then clarifies, after Frodo steps back a bit, that he swore to protect him. But can you protect me from yourself? The threat of Aragorn diminishes at this point, but now we move into temptation. Frodo freely offers Aragorn the ring, completing a rule of three of sorts. He had previously offered it to Gandalf and more recently, Galadriel. The film has been building to this moment, the way it has been building Aragorn's character so far. He's been struggling with his own legacy as well as how best to lead the Fellowship. Does he have the same weakness as a Sealdor in his veins? Does he have what it takes to lead in place of Gandalf? All that comes to a head in this choice by Aragorn. Presented with the ring, we get to see it try and sink its teeth into Aragorn. We get... Uh, we get a temptation leitmotif here, which has sprung up a few times, and Vigo very much focuses in on the ring. It whispers to him, Aragorn, Aragorn, Elisar. And perhaps a question for you, Emily. Is there a reason Sauron may use the name Elisar here in referring to Aragorn? 
Yeah, so um, Elisar does become Aragorn's regnal name, Elisar Talcantar, uh, which is Quenya for Elfstone uh, Strider, House of Strider. Um, but I actually don't think this is a reference to his regnal name. I think this is a reference to the stone that he bases his regnal name on. Um, and we briefly mentioned this before, but there are like a whole bunch of uh, potential origin stories for um, the Elfstone, the Elisar. Uh the one that I prefer is that it was a stone carried by uh, Eärendil when he sailed to the Blessed Lands. It was brought back um, over the sea and given to uh, Galadriel, um, who in turn gave it to her daughter Calibrian, who in turn gave it to her daughter Arwen, who gave it to Aragorn. And it is a, is a stone, is a gem jewel that is um, infused with the light of the sun um, and stretches from what may have been created in the uh, elvish city of Gondolin before its fall. Um, obviously through Eärendil, it has this uh, tremendous importance to, to the house of Elrond, but also through its passage through uh, Galadriel has this linking kind of to the two most significant houses of uh, the elves of Middle-earth. Earth. Ultimately, Aragorn does not take the ring. He closes Frodo's hand over it with his own and pushes it towards Frodo's heart. He also does this while down on a knee at eye level with Frodo. We are seeing how the f- film's focus on hands and height are paying off for narrative impact here. Once the last temptation of Strider is over, they share some kind parting words. Aragorn says he would have followed him into the very fires of Mordor, which made me think about Bormir's line about how he would have followed Aragorn. Almost as almost if that language conveys both loyalty and love. In fact, Sam following Frodo at the end is an act of both loyalty and love. Maybe I'm stretching, but this whole thing feels emotionally coherent. Coherent, I tell ya. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think it is totally emotionally coherent, and I don't think it's a stretch at all, because following is one of the most important displays of love in these books um, and in the wider legendarium. You know, there's Luthien following Baron into death. There's Sam following Frodo into Mordor, Gollum following the ring into pain and misery. And of course, Gimli following Legolas into Valinor, uh, Eowyn following Faramir across Anduin to Athelion. Following is one of the most important ways that Tolkien is able to express love between people, so I think you're absolutely correct in, in your check there. The part that kills me is when Frodo says to look after the others, especially Sam. We have about seven minutes where we can pretend Sam may not be going to mortar with Frodo, which would be an altogether different tale. The line makes Sam sound somewhat naive, but I also think there is a kinder reading. Sam's love and loyalty to Frodo is so simple, so elemental, that the thought of not following him isn't even an option. The last thing I like about this moment is Frodo's purpose is understood by Aragorn, but not explicitly stated. They talk around it a lot, sure, but there's no, I'm going to Mordor alone and with no one else. My name is Frodo Baggins, and this is Jackass. The story has been building to Frodo's departure as well, from his separating himself from the company after Gandalf's fell to his increasingly isolated behavior. That Aragorn understands Frodo's intentions without being specifically told, that Aragorn kinda understands this is the way it always had to be, at least speaks to Aragorn's canniness and awareness. I know we aren't in the habit of praising Aragorn on this pod, but I think this is all good stuff for our Ranger in Black. 
Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I agree with that. And and I think like here it kind of Frodo represents a bit of like an option, a potential pathway for Aragorn. Aragorn theoretically could be Frodo and go off on like a one-man suicide mission where his responsibility is, you know, though on like a theoretical scale immense, really his responsibility is only to himself and to the ring or to the ring's destruction. I think there's probably something potentially comforting in that to Aragorn because the only hard choices he would have to make are the hard choices that would impact himself. Um, and in in sort of the immediate sense, I think there is kind of an ease to that. But Aragorn really can't take that route. He has to go take the route that will take him, uh, that will make him rather responsible for thousands of people and where he like cannot have so small and simple a task. And um, I know Aragorn getting Andriel and Return of the King, the film, is the moment that most people say Aragorn truly becomes the king. But I think his choice here is actually really the moment at which Aragorn becomes the king. Yeah, no, I see it. Or I almost view those two moments as kind of the bookends of it. Um, this is the tr- uh, the moment where he decides to choose his let's say the political over the personal just for easy words with you know alliteration um <laughs> but this is kind of where he he bends himself towards the p- political realm and sets himself on the pathway to kingship um and i think that just kind of exclamation pointed by um the re- reception of Andoril from Elrond in return of the king yeah i think there's maybe okay so i can't exactly remember like what the symbolism of the various like ro- royal jewels jewels are but there's like the there's like the fucking Fabergé egg. I don't know what it's called. It's the like a little round thing. Um, and that's meant to symbolize like the heart of the monarchy, the the heart of the 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 state of the the monarch monarchical state. And then there's the scepter, which is kind of like the the both like I think it's like the fucking wisdom and the violence or like the the military might of it. And then there's obviously the crown. And I feel like Aragorn rejecting the ring here is kind of him symbolically taking up that kind of ownership over the heart and the soul of this new, this renewed kingdom, the, the reunited kingdoms and Gondor and Arna are renewed. And later when he gets Andriel, that is his him taking up the scepter of rule. And then at the very end, obviously with the actual coronation, the actual crowning, that is like that kind of third crown or that third kind of royal crown jewel thing, like fitting into place. Oh, that's perfect. I love that. I love that analysis. The last big moment of import in this block is Frodo's escape from Boromir. With the one ring on, he flees and scrambles up the steps of Ammon Hen and its seat of seeing. In the books, Frodo sees quite a bit more than in the films. We'll cover that in our Token Tolkien book section. The abbreviated moment in the film focuses singularly on Sauron and Barad-dûr. Frodo on the seat initially has his back turned to the south and east, the direction of Mordor but a low murmur and a sharp crackling turn Frodo's head. In the Twilight World, we zoom in on Sauron's fortress of Barad-dûr. Go back to episode 3, Riddles in the Dark, for our discussion of the Dark Tower. Frodo gets a ground, for- ground floor look at Barad-dûr. An endless stream of orcs is filing out. Then the camera lifts up to the tower's zenith, a vantage denied to us when shown earlier in the film. At the top of our door are two pointed spires, and betwixt them is the great eye of Sauron, keeping watch over the Shadowlands and Shadow Worlds. We've talked about the great eye before as imagery, and as something evoked by the books themselves. This lighthouse eye is a film take, and goes hand in hand with other indelible imagery from these movies, though some don't really care for the explicit version of the eye as shown at top of the tower. 
But yes, this is our first glance at the top of Sauron's tower, our first look at the Great Eye as something more than just a flash or a backdrop. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sitting back here cracking up because I really hate that you said the lighthouse there because now I'm just imagining Barador is like Sauron is Willem Dafoe and like Saruman is Robert Pattinson and they're just living out a fucking horror movie in there. It's cracking I w- I- up. I would watch the <laughs> shit out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we're doing the god-awful Tolkien cinematic extended universe or whatever, I think it's only fair that we get one of them. <laughs> um, but yes, so so the height thing is like is interesting, and I'm uh, really glad that, that like you're hitting on that, because I think what this is doing is setting up the significant imagery for Two Towers. Um, Eamon Hen is not itself a tower, um, but the first time that Frodo sees the eye, he is quite literally uh, in a hole in the ground, um, which is how uh, Tolkien describes uh, hobbit holes at the start of uh, The Hobbit. He says, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Uh, So Frodo is quite literally underground uh, the first time he sees it, and now he's gained elevation. He's seeing seeing the eye for for a second or a third time, and he's gained elevation. He's slightly taller. Um, He's not at like eye level (laughs) with Sauron, um, but he is much, much closer to being at that point. And the closer that Frodo gets to being at eye level with Sauron, the more they're going to need a second tower to distract Sauron, whether it's the White Tower of Ecdalion in Minas Tirith or the kind of incidental distraction of the Tower of the Hornburg, uh, where the Horn of Helm Hammerhand sits. Both height and disparate elevations are about to be some of the really, really important imagery in these films. Oh yeah, now my brain is kind of going 100 miles a minute because in this sense, uh, Barak-Dur is kind of analogous to Amon Hen in the sense that it is its own seat of seeing, um, punctuated with the eye <laughs> yeah. up top. Um, but then both uh, Minas Tirith and the Hornburg, like you say, can almost be treated as uh, equivalents to the seat of hearing um, because we hear a lot about the sounds associated with it, like um, the horn of Helm Hammerhand uh, blowing when they ride out to meet the Urukai or the... You know, Boromir talking about, have you ever heard it or seen the White Tower? But then he immediately talks about the sounds of hearing the trumpets call you home and heralding you home. Um, So it's almost like those are seats of hearing um, to kind of juxtapose against the seat of seeing that is uh, Barat-Dur. Yeah. Well, and also there's this element of like uh, Sauron can only see. And he can't hear unless unless you like directly get on the Palantir FaceTime line with him. Uh, he doesn't have total control over the senses uh, in the way that 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 men and the elves do. They have this kind of uh, right. Sorry. Okay. Hang on. Sorry. I'm I'm about to go off on a little yeah. slightly weird one here. Um. So the black speech of Mordor. Um, is created by Sauron uh, during the kind of age and reign of Morgoth. Um, so it is the Black Speech of Mordor, but is also kind of more widely used than that. And Sauron creates it both in mockery of the language of the Valar, but also because he is someone who is like, he is like fundamentally at heart an engineer, and he's someone who's quite interested in how uh, language works. Um, but one of the problems with the Black Speech of of uh, Mordor is that it lacks a, a like, a, a kind of vector or a layer to it that isn't purely functional. Um, it is not a language of poetry. It is not a language of music. It is a language of command and authority. Um, and so, whereas the Valar are able to compose beautiful music, uh, and uh, the various like uh, Eldarine, the the like Elvish languages are able to be um, beauty, like beautiful, and to capture kind of a depth of like like lived experience uh, that the Black Speech 
isn't. Um, the black speech is kind of hindered in, in, in that way. It is language, but it raises its own questions about what is language really if you can only kind of act in, in the imperative, you can only issue commands. Um, the fact that Baradora then is uh, symbolized by an eye, an eye that can see everything, but it can't necessarily hear. There is no sort of like uh, oral, audible component to, uh, to to Sauron's sort of like observational skills or, or like uh, sur- surveillance skills. Um, is a, like is a perfect contrast to what you're saying there, where where like uh, the the experience of the people that are fighting against uh, Sauron is strengthened by the fact that not only can they see things, not only do they have this sort of visual control, but they also have this like audible and 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 language based control over the world not control over the world around them but like um like uh, engagement with the world around them and so the council of Aurand everything that happens at the council of Aurand you could theoretically uh, experience in the same way with your eyes shut, um, because it's all done through through this heavy emphasis on speech and uh, you know at Sam in in um, Shelob's lair uh, doesn't seek out Frodo through uh, light and through vision as his primary function. He's singing uh, a new verse that he writes on the fly about Elbereth Gilthoniel, a uh, 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 Luthien when she goes to sing out uh, seek out Baron when he's you know, caught, dumbass got himself caught by uh, Sauron. She sings a song to him and uh, 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 Fingon, Vindicano, uh, when he's going to save Maithras from Thangorodrim, he sings out a song uh, because he can't see Maithras and Maithras responds with the the next line. And and that kind of level of like the, the like relationship between kind of like the orality and the visuality as like a way of kind of subverting this thing that can only see but can't get to that like deeper experience beneath i think you are like absolutely bang spot like fucking spot on there with like the the, the symbolism of like the 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 amon hen and uh amon law like i think that is yeah like, like yes totally signed up on to that to, to that take i think that's yeah you're totally cra- correct on that pivoting over to our film craft portion of this episode the first 19 or so episodes has established how i simp for the sweeping landscape shots in this trilogy And in Leaving Lothlorien, we get some more, this time in boat form. Not much to call out specifically, but again, the camera rotates and flies as our fellowship makes its way downstream, giving us great views of woodlands and flatlands that surround the Great River. All set to the main fellowship leitmotif that fades away as the Uruk pack moves closer. Yeah, I mean, this is these are some of my favorite shots in the series. I I don't think I ever will ever love anything quite the way that I love like the the combination of like the music and the helicopter shots here. I think it's just bang spot on. But I I also think it's like the incredible efficiency of this film production at times, which is that like you know the Lord of the Rings. The, the story of the Lord of the Rings covers some 3,000 miles in, in total, um, and they don't have 3,000 miles to film on, which is not to say that they're filming on a small amount of land. They they are not. They do have a huge amount of land at their disposal, but um, they have to make the land that they do have feel like 3,000 miles, and I don't think they ever do it more perfectly than they do in these shots here. I already talked at length about Frodo and Aragorn, specifically the latter bending down in the end to fold Frodo's hand around the ring. But it's not just that Aragorn bends down, but the camera during this entire scene is level with Aragorn. Contrast this with the Boromir scene before where Boromir is heavily featured in upshots from Frodo's point of view, but also indicating danger. That is, until he loses his footing and falls, breaking his trance. The camera once again re-levels for Boromir, though granted, he's laying face first in the dirt. Also a quick musical note about the Boromir scenes. 
Under Frodo and Boromir's exchange plays the seduction theme of the ring, a cue to what is happening to Boromir. But the music nicely cuts when the spell is broken and Boromir comes to his senses. Last time out, we talked about how the extreme close-up on eyes through Fellowship of the Ring paid off with the mirror of Galadriel and Sauron. While that tied a bow on a lot of the eye imagery in this film, I feel this goodbye with Aragorn helps to do the same with all the hand imagery, as does the scene we will discuss next next week when Frodo grasps the ring and sets out alone for Mordor, quote-unquote. In this moment, Aragorn helps close Frodo's hand around the ring. Aragorn gets the assist here, helping and supporting Frodo in his decision to go alone. In next week's episode, Frodo makes the final commitment by closing his hand on the ring himself without anyone's help. I really love the establishing and subsequent shots of the Arkanoth. It feels like the most tangible of the wonders of Middle-earth we have seen in this film so far. Dwarodelf was nice, but I think the image of the Argonath is arresting, one of those unforgettable images from this film. And excluding characters, I've probably seen more fan art of the Argonath than any other location or edifice in Middle-earth, at least as depicted from these films. At first, we are presented with the Argonath from Frodo's point of view, when Aragorn gets his attention. The great kings of old rise up beyond the horizon, towering over everything in sight. I don't believe in America's self-made mythology, but I think it's supposed to evoke the Statue of Liberty welcoming immigrants to this new world, this new home. Yeah, and I also think there's kind of this connection to, oh my god, I'm going to say it wrong, uh, it's the Colossus at Rhodes. Yeah, that's one of the eight wonders, seven wonders or whatever that was taken down. Yeah, the, the Colossus at Rhodes, which is the big, the, well, the monumental statue that stands over the harbor at Rhodes um, and was like one of the, the symbols of kind of like the the greatness of like the um, uh, Ptolemaic uh, Egyptian civilization. Oh my God, I'm so sorry to anybody who knows anything about this because I'm almost certain that I'm just like saying absolute bullshit right now. But there, but there's this kind of like, uh, you know, monumental art, like, okay, here, here, we're going to go back to like eighth grade world history here. Uh, monumental architecture is used to show uh, the greatness of civilizations. And the only civilizations that create monumental architecture are the ones that have really gone above and beyond. Like if you think about like the, the incredible work of like the Aztecs, and um, if you think about the, um, uh, like the incredible mound works uh, in, uh, and uh, like made by uh, indigenous uh, civilizations in in uh, North America. These are like the kind of monumental architectures that like you build when you're trying to flex. Um, and it, it also has this kind of like classical like evocation uh, behind it. Like you know, um, in uh, I, well, I say recent but fairly recent-ish architectural history, um, the the Duomo in uh, Florence uh, was a fucking nightmare to try and build because for some seven, eight hundred years, uh, like the West, Western Europe or Southeastern Europe, I guess, South, Southern Europe had forgotten how to make domes in the way that the Romans, ancient Romans had made domes. So you have the Pantheon in, uh, in, in Rome and it has this perfect dome on top of it, this perfect concrete dome. And then for thousands of years after its creation, uh, nobody can fucking figure out how to make it again. And the, the Duomo at the, uh, cathedral and, and Florence, you know, basically stays on, uh, unbuilt for some hundred odd years or whatever it is until the Medici's just pay out the ass to get it done. Um, and, and that kind of loss of knowledge about how to build this monumental architecture is I think also kind of one of these important elements of like civilizational decay. Um, all of this to say the Argonath to me is 
pretty much the only moment in these three films that I think that Gondor is treated with like the awe and dignity that it deserves and requires. Um, and, and I think, um, it is also kind of funny to me because, uh, it happens at a moment that is only kind of ambiguously Gondor related, um, or kind of shows Gondor at its fall because Boromir is the only symbol that we have of Gondor so far. And Boromir is about to do some dumb shit and get his ass kicked. Uh, then Gondor is failing quite badly. And, you know, that doesn't really track with the, the rest of the portrayals of Gondor that we get, but, um, you know, you have this immense monumental architecture in the background and, then you have to contrast it with this kind of fall and despair of Gondor, which is, I suspect, maybe what the filmmakers were trying to get at, but which is what I ideologically disagree with. <laughs> After these establishing shots, we cut to the boats passing between the two statues with the giant feet in the background. The camera then flies up to the top of the Argonoth and pans from fingertips across Elendil's face before settling on a long downshot of Nan Hithowell as we see the boats enter the lake. Off in the distance, you can see Tol Brandir, the great spire of rock splitting the river and falls in twos. One minor detail I love throughout the scenes is that the Argonoth and Tol Brandir are always visible when they should be, even if they are just small shapes way in the background. When the Fellowship makes port, for example, we can see the back of the statue heads way off in the distance. Simple things like a consistent sense of place really helps fantastical stories come to life. Yeah, and I think there's like this kind of symbolic importance as well, like particularly for Aragorn, I'd say, which is that with these things looming the distance, this is really the first point at which he really can't ever get away from his past now. And then, you know, there's also the, the Boromir element that I alluded to like 30 seconds ago, which is that like Boromir falls like quite literally identically to how a sealder falls. A sealder dies because he's pierced by an auric arrow and Boromir is also pierced by an auric arrow. Although I will say that it took one to take down a sealder and it took six to take down Boromir. So obviously one of these guys is better. Um, but you know, there's this kind of uneasy foreshadowing of having a sealder looming in the background of all of this. Um, and, and in a sense, they are the relics of Boromir's kingdom watching him potentially fuck up and doom his kingdom to like a really truly ignoble death. And one more flourish through these last scenes, the roar of the waterfalls can be heard in the background fully throughout, which again, consistent. Appropriately, in my opinion, these scenes heavily feature the one ring light motif, one of the earliest introduced in the film, but one that has also taken a back seat due to the introduction of all the other light motifs in the second half of this film, the Fellowship theme, Rivendell, Isengard, Lothlorien, etc., but in the end, it all circles back to the One Ring. And the ring itself is a circle, so we're closing the loop on this film symbolically. We have forged our own ring in completing this movie. We first get the One Ring theme when passing through the Argonoth, tying the fate of the ring, or perhaps its history, to Gondor and the kingdom that was once that once was but has fallen into ruin. <laughs> no, I'm I'm like I'm I'm metaphorically putting a muzzle on myself here because I think that is like correct. Um like, I think that's correct, and I also think that that is correct in terms of, like, the literal text of the book, um, but I just am, like, 
What's the little the little gremlin dog uh, from the like? Oh, is it the Hanna Barbera cartoons? The one that's always like trying to. Oh no, I'm not even thinking Hanna Barbera. I'm thinking a uh, Scrappy Doo. I feel like Scrappy Doo right now, like trying to like buck against leash. Anyways, um, I, like that is literally the text of the book. It is also literally the text of the film. I just wish that there had been like a slightly more like sympathetic take on you know kind of the folly of man that is inherent to like the creation of the ring and, and like the the problem of like avarice as like a, as a sin as one of the the sort of venal sins. But it's okay. I'll I'll cope. I'll I'll put this off uh, until we get to, until we get to minister. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna say something, and I feel bad about this because I think we need to pin what I'm about to say for a future conversation. But I wonder how much of this, like, you know, we talk about Galadriel's prologue, and like the elves are fairest and wisest, and then the men are clearly just shitheads, and then the films kind of rep- represent that as well as they depict the kingdoms of men. I wonder how much of that is really like from a creative standpoint is like we need to be introspective about ourselves as people and it works better if that's how we view the men characters in these films as opposed to let's say the elves or dwarves um, trying to set up maybe some kind of real life parallel to how we should be feeling about things. I haven't really thought this through, but as you know, we kind of talk about how, you know, you're very pro-man in in this sense, in terms of the Lord of the Rings and Middle-earth, versus how the films are kind of really down on men as a whole. Um, I wonder how much of that has to do with how our, how we're supposed to relate to the kingdom of men. But um, I'll pin that thought, and we'll come back to it in The Two Towers, because that's when we really meet the kingdoms in full. But because I said something like that, I'll at least give Emily a chance to see if she has anything to add to that. <laughs> Um, no, no, I think you're, you're totally right. And actually, one of the things that I think um, I'm going to point out here is that I think, okay, I, I'm going to sound like a religious nut job here. I do not mean to sound like a religious nut job. Every single time I like bring up religious stuff, I feel like I have to preface this, but I'm an atheist uh, and, and and more than just an atheist. I'm like uh, non-denominational and this sort of like, I know Protestants tend to be like, I'm an atheist, but then they act like fucking Baptists or whatever it is. Like I'm an atheist and an atheist all the way through. Um, I think there is an element of difference here in the understanding of how like men act and behave that comes down to a fact of religion um, and that is to say that like J.R.R. Tolkien is a devout Catholic um, and one of the sort of uh, inherent and integral elements of being a devout Catholic is you are constantly having to reckon with the fall of man um, uh, the you know the the existence of original sin means that you are always having to think about yourself in relation to the fall um, and you are having to think about how to be optimistic about yourself and the spiritual body and world that you inhabit in the context of this fall and this sin that is in, integral to who you are. And um, when you are like an atheist, and I say a Protestant atheist, I mean like people who are raised in a in not like necessarily a church going Protestant background, but in a in a like a culture that is uh has Protestant Protestant hegemony in it. Um, people who then become atheists have a very specific take on uh, the world and, and humanity, which tends to be this kind of more like negative, cynical take on it, because there is not that same interest in uh, like reckoning with how you can um, perform sort of your like spiritual and uh, like moral goodness to uh, kind of cleanse yourself or yourself of of sin in the same way that there is under sort of like uh, devout uh, practice in Catholicism. And I think this is kind of the divide that you get here where like the 1990s as a whole, like obviously are still um, like uh, sort of inseparable from the, the resurgence of the religious right in the 1990s, certainly in America. And I don't want to underplay that, but like culturally, there's also kind of more of a turn to this kind of Protestant um, atheism. And I think you really see that in these books because, uh, or not the books rather, the the films because there is that kind of like cynicism about 
men and mankind and what happens after the fall. Whereas in the, the books, as written by J.R.R. Tolkien at the height of World War II, who is a devout Catholic, there is this sort of more like uh, moral or like willingness to accept this kind of like moral nuance and overall optimism towards the state of man after the fall, because obviously that's what Tolkien is doing 24-7 as a, as a Catholic. Yeah, and I actually think that all um, this use of the one ring motif is really just setting up what's to come in the film's finale, which we then get to the one ring theme again playing as Frodo wanders the wilderness alone before Boromir shows up for that fateful encounter. Perhaps the tying of the ring to Gondor is more to make it just coherent with this last act in full as opposed to any real anti-Gondor propaganda. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I, I don't think it's... Uh... I think it's kind of incidental anti-Gondor propaganda in that, like, I genuinely don't believe that the filmmakers, anybody really involved with this, actually thought long or hard enough about Gondor to, like, have a pro or anti-take on Gondor. I think they basically, in the case of Gondor, take the facts as written and are like, this must be the truth and we will not do any more thinking about this. Um, and I think kind of in this sense, the, like, the the linking of the one ring motif and Gondor as a whole is, like I kind of said, incidental because it's following more this, like, heart of darkness type narrative path where each new step they take along the river or along the, you know, the road um, is uh, a step that they are getting closer to. Well, obviously quite literally a step that they're getting closer to this greater evil, but like a step where there is in increasing levels of chaos through what they're doing. I want to start with a quote from the brilliant writer Diana Wynne-Jones. And for those of you who don't know what Diana Wynne-Jones' relationship to J.R.R. Tolkien is, I want to also preface this quote with a lovely little anecdote, which is that uh, Diana Wynne-Jones, for people who don't know, is the author, the inimitable author of Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, she's an incredible writer um, and also a, a sort of incredible scholar on on writing and on the genre of fantasy. Um, she was educated in part uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien himself at Oxford. And there's this lovely anecdote about how um, while Tolkien was in sort of the, the final phases, the final stages of drafting The Lord of the Rings, um, he like like actively bungled his lectures. He had to lecture as a philology lecture at Oxford. He had to lecture a couple times a week, but he knew that if he fucked up his lectures enough, students would stop coming and it would give him more time to write. And Diana and Jones being the absolute hero that she is, would show up to every single lecture on time and then stay late and force him to answer questions for her. And she knew that he was trying to finish up Lord of the Rings. She was basically just, she was doing it number one because she was like a smart person who was actively committed to her education and Tolkien was being a bit of a twat about uh, his responsibilities as a lecturer. But she was also doing it because she could rib him and she could rib him well and there was effectively nothing he could do about it. And I think that says a lot to like her brilliantly funny character. Anyways, uh, the absolute hero who uh, maybe saved us from some dumber narrative choices in, uh, in, in Lord of the Rings by asking Tolkien to do his uh, goddamn job. Anyways, so she wrote a book about the Lord of the Rings, and it is uh, something that I recognize, not recognize, I recommend, um, and will definitely uh, do some free promo, do some free marketing <laughs> on Twitter when this episode comes out. But in the book, she has this really great 
line about the issue of Tolkien on rivers. And here's what she says. But you always have to watch Tolkien with water. He never uses it unmeaningfully. Pools and lakes mirror stars and hold hidden things. The Anduin has contrasting banks and, moreover, reeks of history. In a way, it is history. And the Fellowship is going with the current to break up in confusion at the falls of Rauros. It is worth pointing out that when Aragorn later uses that same river, he comes up it, against the current, changing a course of events that seems inevitable. The other water is, of course, the sea. This has been sounding dimly in our ears throughout the book, but in Lothlorien it begins to thunder. Does it suggest loss, departure, and death? Certainly. But since water is always life to Tolkien, it must also be eternity. And this is, uh, you know, this to me is one of these things that I, you know, quite like uh, talking about and quite like hitting on because I, you know, water is obviously something that is uh, incredibly important uh, symbolically to to uh, the Bible, but also, and because I've made it so far in this episode without doing it, I'm going to reward myself here. Uh, it's also very important in uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. <laughs> and here we go. <laughs> um, in Purgatory, there are two rivers, the Lethe and, you know, and I definitely have not pronounced those correctly. Uh, I'm not even apologize. Uh, Italian's difficult. Um, I refuse to learn it. Um, but in the Lethean, you know, uh, sinners pass through the Lethe to be washed of their sins, to be cleansed of their sins uh, by the maiden Matilda, I believe it is. And then they pass through the Uno uh, to have their uh, memories of the good deeds that they performed in life strengthened. Um, and so there is this kind of th this this two-step process as they uh, enter purgatory and prepare to enter paradise, which is they're, you know, baptized, cleansed of their sins, but then they are also made to remember all of the good that they do in life. And, and so there is this recognition that you need to kind of um, shed all of the bad and, and move on from the bad and, you know, have forgiveness and recognition of like the necessity of forgiveness in yourself. Um, but then also recognition of the things that are good and positive before you can truly enter paradise. Um, and I think, um, um, and this is maybe a slightly belabored uh, analogy here, but I think um, Anduin serves as Lethe in, in this context where, you know, Sam, for example, literally gets in the water and literally has to swim and Anduin to go after Frodo. And as he is doing that, there's almost a sense of like his sins being washed away so that, that he can begin this, this sort of long trek towards this ultimate kind of higher uh, uh, moral good. And then when he crosses back, when, when the task is completed and he crosses back uh, across the, uh, Brandywine on his way back to the Shire, there is this sort of strengthening of all of the good that he has done. And, and this is sort of part of the uh, scouring of the Shire. And so not necessarily something I can get into a huge amount here. But Boromir, by contrast, never actually gets an Anduin. And so he never has his, his sins cleansed from him. Even when he dies, even when his funeral boat is sent down the river, it is over top of the river. And almost um, as uh, the book goes to great pains to point out, um, almost miraculously over top the river and that his body and his funerary boat does not break apart in the Golden Falls of Raros. Um, it is in all ways kind of kept dry and safe of, of the touch of the water as he flows out to the sea. And so even in death, um, Boromir may have this sort of element of greatness to him. He is not free of sin uh, in in the way that uh like uh, 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 uh like a religious person would wish to be uh, as they uh you know prepare well not prepare but as they are um uh, as they die um as they prepare to go to heaven um 
And then the, the the sort of necessary mention there is that uh, Tolkien himself has a great river uh, right at his uh, back door as he's writing this. Um, and in Oxford, it's called the River Isis. Um, but the rest of us in the world know it as the River Thames. Uh, and the River Thames, of course, has uh, tens of thousands of years of history along its banks and is one of the most important uh, rivers in, uh, at least in Western Europe, for, for, for sure, if not in, in the world. Um, and to have that kind of sense of like even the the kind of muddy earth uh, of the the banks of the Isis as you kind of put you know stick your fingers into it you are touching that ancient history and then to have this connection this like vein this artery that takes you directly to the kind of heart of the moral universe which is of course Harland and Minas Tirith um, that is I think you know this really important powerful imagery of uh, the rivers here. Uh, as a brown man, I want to give a shout out to the brown lands, no relation, <laughs> the creative title for the lands that are now brown. <laughs> when the fellowship hit the great river out of Lothlorien, the land to the east is barren, rocky, dead. This land is part of Rovanion, in between Mirkwood to the north and Emin Muil to the south, and it was raised by Sauron so as not to give cover to any armies approaching Mordor. This area was once believed to hold the gardens of the Entwives. What are the Entwives? Well, that's two tower talk. No need to be hasty about it now. <laughs> yeah, um, I think, <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, Entwives writes, uh, and it's not just a subreddit. Um, but uh, one of the things that I like about the Brownlands in the book is that there is like a, an overwhelming sense of like bad shit happened here. Bad shit went down. Um, but nobody really knows what the bad shit is. Um, Aragorn, who at this point in the quest is, has kind of taken on uh, Gandalf's position as lore master in, in his stead, um, straight up says, I have no idea what in this world could have possibly caused the level of destruction and decay that we see here. Um, and I And I like it for a lot of, I like that for a lot of reasons and, and for some of the reasons that I kind of outlined when we were talking about uh, the Balrog and Moria, but like there's a little bit more chaos in the physical sense to this world than you might typically assume out of a fantasy, like a religiously bent fantasy novel. Um, there's kind of like a lot of fodder in the existence of the Brownlands for people who want to have like a, an essentially a shit happens read on Tolkien's legendarium because there is this kind of perpetual feeling that there is not just something always out of your always just out of reach out of your control and uh like a moral and good senses in the existence of god but there is also something always just out of reach or or hopefully just slower than your legs can run that is bad and evil and i think the brown lands symbolize that perfectly during the journey down river, it is very likely that the fellowship was hounded by a nazgul upon a fell beast like we will start seeing in the next film I, this might be confirmed elsewhere in Tolkien's work, but in the text of Fellowship of the Ring, we only have the context clues about black shapes in the sky and the blast radius of negative vibes, as discussed way back when. <laughs> uh, in the books, though, Legolas lands an arrow in it, and it kind of flees for the nuns. Moving over to the seat of seeing, I want to talk a little bit about what Frodo saw. Um, as mentioned earlier, Frodo spies Barad-dur in the Great Eye in the film, but in the books, he gets a better look around the world. To the north and west, he sees orcs pouring out of the Misty Mountains and fires on the borders of Lothlorien. To the north, the elves of Mirkwood contend with the contend with beasts uh, contend with beasts, yes, while Bjornings deal with their own troubles. 
Yeah. And so this is a, a really interesting and good change between, well, not good. Uh, it's an interesting change and, and one that's good to bring up, which is that the struggle against Sauron in the books is a much bigger struggle. And there are like an enormous number of battles that are fought in this war, not just the three that we see on screen in the movies. And um, after the battle of Moranin, there's still another battle or two that are fought in Dale and Ravanian before the coronation of Aragorn. And then there are still close to six months before the scouring of the Shire is complete and the war officially comes to an end. So it is truly a war in the war sense, not just a series of skirmishes and battles. And I think that is one of these sort of key elements about like the the ongoing uh, lived experience. I think the differential between having a lived experience of like a real uh you know, devastating war versus this sort of distant 1990s targeted warfare vision of what war is. Um, And the other sort of important element to this is that you hear a lot more, which is not to say a lot, but a lot more from the other peoples in the books. You hear from King Brand of Dale, who is grandson of Bard the Bowman, who Bard at least dies in uh, a battle in this war. You hear, as you said, from several different groups of elves, including the elves of Mirkwood. Um, And you also see that the dwarves do actively get involved. The actual war element of these films hyper-focuses on men, but in the book, it's a really expansive war. And there's a point to that, I think, which is that there's an argument therein that war includes everybody. Yes, many of the Noldorian elves are hopping ship and sailing west, but the elves also have to be ready to fight because at the end of the days, they're going to have to fight a final war against Morgoth. In Middle-earth, the dwarves, the sylvan elves, the northmen, none of them can escape the totality of war. I think the films tend to take a fairly 1990s approach to war, which is like the simultaneous valorization of war, while war itself becomes a far more distant, far less tangible, and far more targeted thing, essentially the drone warfare of war strategies. In the films, we see three full-scale pitched battles, but you don't really get a sense that war is inescapable. Merry and Pippin make the argument to Treebeard, but it's not really shown in quite the same way. Yeah, no, that's outstanding analysis. And I do appreciate that the world is more at war in the text um, than it is in the uh, books, which does make it feel a lot more targeted and more in line with that 90s sensibilities. Um, this just makes me think a little back, little about what I said in regards to Balrog and Gandalf, in that I don't consider the Balrog a front of this war, but it also represents an evil that should be confronted at this time um, as they're trying to, you know, set the accounting straight on good and evil, essentially, in Middle-earth. Um, that's just my own, you know, galaxy brain take, but I do really appreciate that. Um, there is a be- bigger sense of the world at war, and as you say, it kind of culminates with the scouring of the Shire in the books. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right to bring the Balrog thing in, because I think um, I think one of the things that's key is... Um, it's not Peep Show. Oh shit! What is it? It's the Mitchell and the Mitchell and Webb look, uh, where there's the skit where, um, uh, you know, it's the well, it's famous for the meme now, but it's the guys dressed up in the Nazi uniform saying, "Are we the baddies?" Um, and I think there's that element um, to a lot of takes on like a lot of war films where theoretically you could argue for the other side, um, theoretically. Um, and and there's sort of that more human element of there is not a, a like there is not an off and on switch to to the morality here. But when you take in these questions, and, and you know what I should even say, and in, in terms of Sauron, in terms specifically of what Sauron wants, um, you could quite theoretically make like a, an essentially materialist argument for a lot of what Sauron is arguing for, um, and certainly like an anti-clerical, anti like. Uh, 
the, uh, theocratic argument for for what Sauron wants, for what Feanor wants, yada yada yada. Um, by bringing in the issue of like the Balrog and intimately connecting that to the war, I think you're totally spot on with that. Um, there is the sense that like the only wars that are actually worth fighting are the ones that have this abject moral purpose to it. Um, and you know, Tolkien is writing at a time when there is effectively the war to end all wars in a moral term. And, you know, you, you can argue on the edges of whether or not the Brits actually really gave a shit about getting rid of the Nazis. And certainly they did not. Uh, and I'm hesitant to use this word given the current political context we're in right now, but the Brits were not keen on denazification. Uh, the Americans sheltered Nazis after the end of the war and West Germany uh, effectively could not rebuild itself had they not uh, brought in uh, Nazis to do the rebuilding for them. Um, so, you can argue around the, the sort of edges and the nuance of that, but Tolkien himself sees World War II as this great moral battle between good and evil. Um, and so when he talks about, you know, war must be, well, uh, we fight a, a conqueror who would devour all, he is truly meaning that you should only have war in these morally, essentially black and white landscapes. Um, and by the time you get to the 1990s, where there is these question, this new question of imperial wars, this new question of like intervention, uh, you know, you know, the Balkans versus uh, Rwanda um, and, and this question of like, what does it take for a war to start? Um, you are getting this kind of um, backing off a bit from the necessity of having an, like an absolute evil and uh, in, in when and how you go to war. And obviously that's something that immediately turns around and comes back uh, or is uh, kind of taken away, taken off the table again when, you know, this axis of evil bullshit comes up uh, for, for Iraq. Um, but that kind of weakening of like the moral uh, stakes for going to war is absolutely a key part of the kind of 90s context of these films. I think you're totally right. Frodo eventually turns south and looks upon Minas Tirith, and in view of the great white tower of the guard, Frodo's hope swells. Well, for a moment, as his gaze is drawn east from there, over the ruins of Osgiliath, towards Minas Morgul, the plains of Gorgoroth, and Mount Doom before finally landing on Barad-dûr. Lastly, I want to talk about Amon Law, the sister hill to Amon Hen. Across Nen Hithoel, on the east bank, is Amon Law, the hill of hearing, a counterpart to the western bank's hill of seeing. It too has a high seat, the seat of hearing, where one can supposedly hear from long and far. We don't visit this location, and it's most, most definitely held by orcs on that side of the river. Between these two seats, I wonder if in the days of the king, the king of Gondor would bring their sons here like Mufasa and Simba and say, everything the light touches is our kingdom, given the high vantage point atop the falls looking south onto the realms of Gondor. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on. Which Manuclear Bomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers. And I'm Ben Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, where I am on Twitter constantly lamenting Boromir. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.